So after a uh, a summer hiatus uh, away from the Sermon on the Mount and our theme of discipleship, we're returning to that this morning, and we will be uh, in the Sermon on the Mount for all of the fall. We'll be right up to our Advent series that begins in late November. Uh, So this morning, what we're going to do is a bit of a reboot. We're going to do a bit of an, an overview once again of the Sermon on the Mount just to get us somewhat refocused and, uh, and headed back in that direction. So I'm not going to look at any one particular verse uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Next week we'll be starting in uh, chapter 6, verse 19. So if you want to kind of read ahead a little bit, uh, you can start there. But this morning we're just going to kind of hit a bit of an overview. Let me read a quote uh, to you from uh, an Australian uh, atheist thinker, uh, author, uh, his name is Raymond Gaeta, and a few years ago, uh, he had this observation. I think it was maybe somewhat uh, of a reluctant observation on his part, but he wrote this. Only someone who is religious can speak seriously of the sacred. We, and when he says we, he's talking about kind of just humanity in general. We may say that all human beings are precious, that they are an ends to themselves, that they are owed unconditional respect, that they possess inalienable rights, and of course, they possess inalienable dignity. In my judgment, these are ways of trying to say what we feel uh, when we feel a need to say, when we are estranged from the conceptual resources, that being God. We need to say it. None of these statements about human beings has the power of the religious way of speaking, That is, that we are sacred because God loves us and because we are his children. I want to suggest to you this morning that as we we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount, that this is a perfect example of how desperately the world needs us to follow Jesus with a passion and devotion. By that, I don't mean that the world will always like the fact that we follow Jesus with passion and devotion, But what this author was putting his finger on was the fact that he knows that there's something sacred, but he can't quite bring himself to admit it. But he sees in the lives of those he considers religious, those who who, who in that particular uh, scenario are people who follow Jesus, that there is a greater greater, uh, means to an end. That the belief in a God of love and compassion actually can make sense out of this world. So it is not enough for us to be casual disciples. That's really an oxymoron. It's not enough for us to spend some time with Jesus, time uh, throughout the week, occasionally coming to church on Sunday morning, and have a quote-unquote religious part of our life. What Jesus is calling us to, because he loves the world far more intensely than you or I, he's calling us to a discipleship that, that is passionate, and that knows no boundaries, that has limitless devotion, because we know that only Jesus can change our lives, and only Jesus can change the world. So as we return to the Sermon on the Mount this morning, uh, let me kind of give you the theme for this morning, but also kind of the notion that will surround all of our teaching over the next couple of, uh, a couple of months together, is that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, radically transforms the thinking, priorities, and goals of those who follow Jesus. Jesus is all about transformational change. 
He's not about you or me pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps as if that were possible. He's about us learning to take his yoke because it's easy and light. It's about us learning to follow him and trust our lives to him. It's about a a transformation that takes place in partnership with the Holy Spirit, which we'll come to in a minute, that actually gives us an undivided heart. It moves us into a deeper loyalty to God. And so I've just tossed out this verse in in, uh, Psalm chapter 86, uh, and the notion that we want the Lord to teach us His way, that we would want to rely on His faithfulness in order that He would give us an undivided heart that we may fear His name. And so in, in, in my kind of taking that and boiling it down, it's a radical transformation of thinking and priorities and goals. Now, we need to mention right off the bat that transformational discipleship is the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's not just the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, for you to be transformed, for me to be transformed, for us to be changed into the, into the image of Jesus, so we sit back and say, okay, Holy Spirit, as soon as you're ready, go. You know, kind of push whatever magic button it is that you push in my mind and my heart and change me. And as soon as I feel that change, I'll go and act upon it. Okay? That's not what Scripture teaches about transformational change. Transformational change is the work of the Holy Spirit. But as the Holy Spirit is working in my life, it also creates within me a spirit of cooperation that I want to see these changes happen to me. When I say to myself, you know, I really want to be a person that is is poor in spirit, that really is a person that's humble. I really want to be a person that acknowledges that they're a sinner in need of God's grace. Well, where did that initial thought come from? It came from the Holy Spirit, but as I latch onto it and make it my own, it's a cooperative work. It's something that, that happens together. So it's my cooperation with and my submission to His directional influence in my life. You see, it's not enough for me to say I'm going to cooperate with the Spirit of God. It's not enough for me to say I'm going to cooperate with the Word of God. That's not quite strong enough. And it's not the radical transformation that Jesus wants to bring about in your life and my life. And and if, and if all we do is cooperate as if we're on the same level, then we will fall short. We will not be used in a significant way by God to to transform the life even of of our families uh, or the Green Tree community, you know, our little church here, much less... Uh, take on a bigger picture, but it is rather our cooperation with and submission to. In other words, we say, Jesus, you are Lord, and what you say is what I want to obey. And when I have decisions to make, when I face choices in my life, whether they be moral or financial or uh, family-oriented, I'm going to submit my will to yours. So, and we'll see this morning as we pull out a couple of examples here where Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said this, but I tell you that it's actually that. My cooperation with the Spirit and my submission to the Spirit says, even if I have a hard time with that, I'm I'm going to allow the Lord to be Lord in my life. That is what the work of the Holy Spirit is all about. That's why we have the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches me the way And his spirit leads me into it. It's much like a coach who demonstrates and shows and spends countless hours with with players, helping them develop and helping them learn the skill, helping them take the talents that they have and perfect them. But there there are places where the coach can explain things that the player hasn't yet experienced because they're they're just too young and they just haven't had the experience. And the wise thing to do is to take that, that great talent and let coaching be applied to it. 
and submit to the coach. That's how, that's how you learn. That's how you improve. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So say you're here, and I want to I move you closer to being like Christ. So what does it mean? What does Scripture mean when we say be transformed in our thinking and our priorities and our goals? Well, before I begin to unpack that, let me pray for us that God would teach us this morning uh, what he wants us to understand about this. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would have your will done in this place. We pray your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That means our lives. That's not just some nebulous place out there. We want your will to be done. We're asking that your will would be done in our hearts and in our minds. And that is the work of your Holy Spirit. And it is also our cooperation and submission to that will. It's both ends. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us, refocus us again on this beautiful, glorious sermon that breathes life into our souls, that gives us passion where there's deadness of heart, that gives us a context for life in this broken world when we don't have the answers to the difficult questions. Lord Jesus, it doesn't matter for me to stand up here and just spout whatever I believe. That's of no help to anyone. So we pray for your spirit and your word to teach us and guide us this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. What does it mean to have our thinking radically transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's go back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's talk for a minute. When we're talking about thinking, let's talk about the Beatitudes. Just for a minute, if you remember those from a long time ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. All of those things that Jesus wanted to, to transform the foundation of our lives. And we're not going to go through all of those again this morning. If you want to, you can go back online and you can listen to each one of those sermons that were preached on those particular topics. But just to toss out one or two examples, blessed are those uh, who are meek, those who understand that the power doesn't come from within them that the power comes from God to actually transform things, that allows them to have a humble spirit. That's a way to think. A way to think is wanting to be a a person of humility, a person of gentleness, a, a person who is kind to others. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are someone who will say, you know what, I've got to fight for the peace. I can't just be content with the status quo. It's not about peacekeeping, just kind of making sure there's an absence of conflict, but I want to make sure that people's relationships are restored. I want to make sure that my relationships with my family, with my friends, are deep and abiding relationships. That only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, but that's our thinking. That's our reasoning, and that's where Jesus begins because he wants to lead us not only from our thinking, but what? To applying that into our lives, in other words, to discernment. So Jesus says something crazy like, blessed are you when others persecute you. Think about that just for a second. Blessed are you. You're to be congratulated when someone sees that you're a follower of Jesus and seeks to do you harm. Let me tell you something. That's a radically different thought process than I have in my mind. I don't look at that and go naturally and go, isn't that great? Let me give you another one. You've heard that it was said that anyone, uh, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa! You're saying that the thoughts of my, of my mind, if they're never spoken, they're never acted upon, already condemn me? 
that I'm already guilty? That is a radically different way to think. And I need to understand that in order to discern how to live my life in devotion to Jesus. I was in Colorado uh, over the summer when I got a toothache. And I've never really had a bad toothache before, but after about three days, this was like I was crying. It hurt so bad. And so I, uh, we called uh, Cindy's mom, who lives in Colorado Springs, got in to see a dentist, saw the dentist, and uh, he said, you need a root canal. I said, well, thank you very much, but I've never met you in my life, and, and uh, nothing personal, but I'm not letting you do a root canal. I'm headed back to St. Louis. He said, well, I'm going to give you some antibiotics, and I'm going to give you some pain pills, okay? Now, I, just like bringing my teeth together made me literally want to put my head through a wall. It hurt that bad. And he said, now I'm going to go down. There's Walgreens or whatever. Get the, uh, the antibiotics. Get the pain pills, but don't take the pain pill on an empty stomach. I'm <laughs> like, right, you want me to chew something before I take this pain pill. I said, so I, I didn't say that out loud, but I'm thinking that in my mind. Yeah, this makes no sense. Go eat something, you know, go, go get an excruciatingly more pain in order to then be able to take the pain pill. So I took the pain pill, and I had like a third of a McDonald's hamburger. And what I can tell you is I don't remember. The drive back from Colorado Springs to the camp was about an hour and 20 minutes. I don't remember the last... 35 minutes. I think that's why they say don't operate a vehicle, right? Okay. Fortunately, by God's grace, I got back. Okay. But the notion of eating something at that moment, I wanted to say that makes no sense. But you know what the doctor knew? The doctor knew it made perfect sense because he didn't want anybody else or myself to get harmed by crashing a car into them because I was under the condition of this medication. The doctor knew what he was talking about. We have to believe that Jesus understands what he's talking about when he says something as absolutely humanly insane as blessed are you when you're persecuted. Do you actually think the Christians in Mosul are better off today because people are holding a gun to their head and saying either convert to radical Islam or die? Are they really more blessed than you and me? That's what Jesus says. That's, That's crazy on human terms. And that's why, friends, your thinking and my thinking is not enough. We need to submit it to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We need to learn to let him instruct us in our thinking. Because when he does, then something else begins to happen. It's kind of like a domino that, that begins to fall over and hit the next domino, and then the next, and then the next. What happens is our, is our priorities begin to change. In other words, we begin to think, what's really important to me? If I study this passage of Scripture, and, and, and study all of Scripture, but we're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and if I study this passage of Scripture, and, and I read something that says uh, along the lines of, of love your enemies, and that's not natural to me, then, then how am I going to see that change take place in my life if I want to think that way? And I begin to think that way, and God begins to change my heart, and I begin to see some things I haven't seen before. My priorities are going to change. In other words, what's really important to me is going to shift. Because what's really important to me, apart from the gospel, I can just be honest for a minute, what's really most important to me, apart from Jesus Christ, is a two-letter word, me. You're not most important. I'll, I'll be brutally honest. My, my family isn't most important. Apart from Christ, I'm sorry, I don't have the character in my life to put anybody else ahead of me. And that's a really dangerous place to be. But the gospel says, Tom, you can be transformed. 
You can be changed, and your priorities can change, and no longer will you sit on the throne of your own life. And guess what? That's the best thing that could possibly happen to you. Well, if I'm going to move off the throne, who's going to get on the throne? Well, clearly God is. What did we pray this morning? Our Father in heaven, what does it say in Matthew 6, 9 and 10? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. That means my life. as it is in heaven. Like I said, I'm not just praying for it to come other places. I'm, coming, I'm praying for it to come in my heart. So my first priority shifts away from me, and my first priority becomes the glory of God, that my life is lived for his glory above all else. And the reason this is important is, is two reasons. One is it, it is that faith which allows me to be in a relationship with God in the first place, but it's also where that faith leads. It, it changes me to, to prioritize other things differently in my life. Uh, let me give you an example. When I was uh, 20, what year did we get married? We got married in 81. So I was 22 years old when I got married. I took, I took wedding vows, right? Um, everybody that's gotten married took vows, right? And it's, you know, for better, for worse, richer, poor, all that different stuff. But I promised that I was going to love Cindy more than anybody else the rest of my life, okay? Now, when I was 22, I had, a, I had like a vague notion of what that meant, but only a vague notion. I only understood the outer edges of it. Now we've been married going on 33 years. I have a deeper understanding of actually what it means to love someone else more than you love yourself. I'm not saying I'm being successful at it all the time, but I'm telling you that after 33 years, even I can learn something about that. And in July, Cindy and I met in Colorado. She'd left from Kansas City because she was with our grandkids. On the 6th of July, we met in Colorado. And we were together every day, several hours a day for 24 days straight. Okay, three plus weeks. Every morning she was there when I woke up. We did things together. We went shopping. We took walks. We spent time sitting and having coffee and talking about our kids. 24 straight days with the same person every day. I wish I could leave tomorrow and do it again. Right? Why? Because my heart has been transformed. Because I set some priorities back when I was 22, not really understanding what they were, but now, by God's grace, beginning to live them out to the point where we were on our way to Oregon to meet up with our kids. A friend of ours had very graciously offered their guest house to us, and I looked at Cindy and I said, I kind of wish the kids weren't coming. <laughs> you know, what was, what was I thinking? You know, I've said to my kids, I want to make sure we're always together once a year, and I really do, but quite frankly, I'd have been just as happy if it was just me and Cindy. Why? Because my priorities had changed. Because God led me to love her well, which means that if we're seeking God's glory, it's not just for God's glory, that's good enough as it is, but it's because God's leading that somewhere else, and he always leads it where? For man's good. Anytime I am most concerned about God's glory, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven, I can't say that without saying, then therefore, Lord, I'm going to join you in that, and I'm going to do crazy things like... You shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you will look like your Father who is in heaven. People will actually look at you and go, gosh, he looks like God, his Father. That, that when I give to the needy, I won't make a big deal about it. That I'll learn not to be anxious about the things of this world, but rather I'll, I'll live for his kingdom. That there will actually be a good that happens to other people because I desire God's glory to be seen in my life. That's why it's important for our priorities to follow our thinking. 
But as God changes the way we think and look at the world, he changes our priorities that we want his glory first and foremost, which always leads to man's good. And if we're thinking that way, and we're reasoning that way, and we're beginning to, to reset some priorities, or, or we are in cooperation and submission to the Spirit, starting to reset some priorities, then our goals begin to change too. And there's a twofold aspect of this, what we lay aside and what we take up. Let's talk about what we lay aside for a minute. We're going to get into this passage in detail uh, this next Sunday. But Jesus says in Matthew 6, uh, chapter, excuse me, Matthew six nineteen. do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's not a suggestion. That's not a passing thought. He didn't say, you know, every once in a while, consider maybe not laying up treasures on earth. That's an imperative. He says, don't go this way. It's going to turn out badly for you. It won't work. That's a change in a goal that moves me away from the temporal and it says that, that what treasures can be accumulated on this earth are not essential to my spiritual well-being and to my caring for my fellow man. So I need to learn to lay it aside. What does our culture say? What does modern philosophy say? This life is most important. Invest everything in the present. I've begun to learn to ask a very simple question when I'm tempted to think this way. Two words, and I would encourage you, I'm happy to share it with you. You can take it up if you want. You don't if you don't like it. But I've, but I've added two words to my thinking when I begin to be tempted to say, you know, I really see the benefit of, of laying up treasure in this lifetime. To make that a high priority in my life. To set aside the priority of glorifying God and to really just kind of live for what I can get now. These two words are simply, then what? What comes after that? Then what? I wish when I was a kid uh, trying out some things <laughs> in life earlier on. Uh, we lived over on Nurk Avenue where we still live. I haven't gotten very far. I moved across the driveway. It's a pretty, pretty long distance. Uh, but the Missouri Railroad tracks run behind our house, about, about 100 yards behind my house, Missouri Pacific Railroad track. When you're like in fifth grade, that's the greatest thing that ever could possibly happen to you. But we did some really dumb things playing out on the railroad tracks. And I wish that when I was in fifth grade, I would have said, then what? You know, before I tried something, I'll give you an example. The only cigarette I've ever tried in my life um, was in fifth grade, and Bill Wood stole a pack of his dad's cools. And uh, we were back in our little fort out there by the railroad track, and Bill Wood said, hey, we can have a cigarette. And I didn't say then what. I just said, oh, cool. okay, great, give me one. And I started puffing on it, right? And he's going, you're doing it all wrong. I'm like, what, what do you mean I'm doing it wrong? He goes, you don't puff on it. You got to go like this. Go like this. And inhale it really deep into your lungs. And I went, oh, man, that's awesome. So I'm like, and when I woke up, <laughs> I was laying on the ground, and I was kind of blinking my eyes, <laughs> coughing and, and joking, and, and there was Bill Wood just laughing and laughing and laughing. He's like, you don't have the hang of it quite yet. <laughs> I said, fortunately, I said, I don't ever want the hang of this. But I wish at that moment I had said, well, what happens after I do that? What happens after I suck all that into my lungs? What comes next? <laughs> when the world says to us, you know what, your thinking and your priorities and your goals ought to all be centered on this life. We ought to say, well, then what? That isn't quite enough. It's time for us, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, to lay aside this notion that our lives must be built around earthly treasures and instead embrace that which 
Embrace that which is eternal. Embrace the everlasting. God's kingdom come. His will be done. Jesus says two of the the Beatitudes end in promises that they will receive the kingdom of God. Jesus says don't, don't pursue treasures in this world, but lay up treasures in heaven. And we'll get to that week after next. What does it mean? We're going to look at the negative next, this, next week. What does it mean to, to not uh, go after treasures in this life? Then the next week, we're going to look at what does it mean to actually go after everlasting treasures? But for our point this morning, Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven, then the kingdom of God. The summation of all of this is found in chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus simply says, seek first his kingdom. And so it's not that we don't have goals anymore. It's not that it's not enough just to say we're going to set aside the notion of living for this life. Something needs to replace it. And my highest goal as a disciple of Jesus is an everlasting goal, which is being part of his kingdom. Because you see, the question uh, that Gaeta asks or raises or the observation he makes might be a better way to say it, that those who who have an understanding of the eternal, really, are those who understand that our thinking needs to be radically different than the thinking of this world. And if that happens, our priorities shift. and Our goals begin to move in a radically different direction. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to just not so much say, now go and do this, as I want to raise three questions for you to consider. And these are things that you can kind of wrestle with through the week. You can jot them down if you want to. But I think these are good questions when it comes to how is God changing me? How, where's the radical transformation in my life when it comes to my thinking, my priorities, and my goals? And so I, I want to boil it down to the practical. In which areas do I see growth? Where do I see God really changing my heart? Where do I see that I can be encouraged by the fact that the Spirit of God is working in my life? Maybe I used to be a really, really greedy person, and now I'm a really generous person. Praise God. That's a place where God's working. Maybe I was a person that really had a lot of anger in my life, and and I just was always short-tempered with people, and I begin to see a patience that's starting to flourish and grow in my life. So I, I, I want you to look for where God's working in your life. I want to be encouraged by how God's working in your life and be encouraged by how God's working in my life. But then also ask the question, and where am I struggling with a divided heart? Where am I still kind of listening to the the message of this world? And friends, I guarantee you, it's not an either or. You're going to have both of those if you're a disciple of Jesus. You're going to see areas of growth, and you're going to see other areas of new growth that needs to happen as well. That doesn't make you a bad Christian. When you make that list, you shouldn't go, oh, no, there aren't any other Christians that are like this. I'm a mess. No, we're all in the same boat together. So maybe look through it like that. Maybe ask, what is one specific area? I'll ask for prayer and support from some brothers and sisters of Christ whom I trust. Maybe you see one particular area. You go, man, I'm, I, I really do need to, to grow a lot in that particular area. And I have a couple of friends that are Christians, and maybe they're a family member, maybe a spouse or a child or a parent that you could share that with. Say, you know, could you pray for me about this and ask me these questions every once in a while? What practice can I instill in my life to foster a deepening discipleship? I'll just give you one simple one. Read the Sermon on the Mount every day between now and next Sunday. Three chapters, probably maybe maybe 20 minutes. If you're like me, I'm kind of a slow reader. Maybe 20 minutes, but probably even less for those of you who read pretty quickly. This is a practice of reading God's Word. Why? <laughs> Why are these good questions with which to struggle? Because what Jesus wants to do is not be a casual influence in your life or my life, 
not kind of a place we go to get advice, but he wants to be Lord of our lives and he wants to transform us because he knows when that happens, we really are receiving the blessing that he longs to give us and we can be used by him to make a difference in this world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for this sermon that we're going to dive back into. Father, we thank you that uh, you gave these words to your son to give to us this last year and now again in this fall because you knew that Green Tree Community Church, like any other group of disciples, needs to learn to submit to the Lordship of Jesus and to trust him more deeply and to follow him with an undivided heart. And Lord, you knew that we would always struggle with that. We'd never be perfect at it, but you knew that by the power of your spirit and your word that we can grow up into our faith. And Lord, we need it and our world needs it. We need very desperately to live thinking, setting priorities and goals as disciples of Jesus above everything else in order that we would bring glory to God in order that our lives would be lives that reflect his love and his compassion to a world that so desperately needs to also know him as Savior and Lord. To that end, Lord Jesus, burn these truths deeply into our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen.